Good morning, King's Church Kingston. I hope you're doing well. I'm really looking forward to sharing God's word with you this morning as we continue our Philippians series. So if you have a Bible, why don't you turn to Philippians chapter 3, and we're going to read in a bit from verse 12. However, before I start talking, let me show you a short clip from Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. It's a scene where Charlie Bucket wins the prize of his life. Quote scrupulous fudge mellow delight, please. <laughs> the nerve of some people. <laughs> I know. Forging a ticket, come on. last golden ticket in my shop too. Listen, I'll buy it from you. I'll give you $50 and a new bicycle. Are you crazy? I'd give him $500 for that ticket. You want to sell me your ticket for $500, young man? That's enough of that. Leave the kid alone. Listen, don't let anyone have it. Take it straight home. Do you understand? Thank you. Let's hear exactly what it says. Greetings to you, the lucky finder of this golden ticket from Mr. Willy Wonka. I shake you warmly by the hand, for now I do invite you to come to my factory and be my guest for one whole day. So I was 12 years old when it seemed like I heard the gospel for the first time, the glorious good news of Christianity. I'm sure I'd heard it before. I'd gone to church most Sundays as a child. But it was the first time it made an impact. It was a warm summer evening in June 1989, and the famous American evangelist Billy Graham came to London. And he spoke simply about how Jesus came in order to seek and save those that were lost. He explained that because of the wrong that everyone's done, which the Bible calls sin, all of us have been separated from God. He explained that our good efforts cannot bridge the separation between God and humans. Yet Jesus came, he lived the righteous life we couldn't live, and he died the death that we deserved so that the barrier that separated us and God could be broken. 
He explained that if someone turned from their sins and put his or her faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and their Saviour, they'd receive the gift of salvation and be guaranteed to be with Jesus forever in eternity. I listened and I was astounded. It was as if God was offering a golden ticket, one even better than Willy Wonka's. It was a golden ticket offering the free gift of eternal life by trusting in Jesus as However, there weren't just five tickets available, but God was extending this invitation to everyone in that football stadium that night. In fact, he was extending that invitation to everyone who would respond to Jesus as Lord and Saviour. And that night, in June 1989, I responded in faith. And as much as I understood, I turned from sin, I put my faith in Jesus, and that night I experienced the joy of knowing the security that salvation is a gift that's received rather than earned by our good behaviour or self-improvement. However, over the next couple of years, very little changed in my life. I stopped swearing. In the church I grew up in, people didn't swear, so I stopped doing that. But apart from that, my life was the same. It was as if I was holding on to this golden ticket that gave a future guarantee, but that was basically it. My faith basically involved waiting. I had no expectation that putting my faith in Jesus would significantly impact my life in the here and the now. It wasn't until two years later when I started attending the church youth group and people were talking about knowing Jesus, living for Jesus, walking by the Holy Spirit, that the penny dropped and I realised that I'd failed to grasp what it meant for living for Jesus in the here and now and for him to be Lord and saviour of my life. If only I'd read and understood Philippians chapter 3, verses 12 to 21 as a 12-year-old, my story could have been different. You see, in Philippians chapter 3, Paul shows us both how the gospel gives us a future hope, there's a future prize that we're living for and we see that, but also it shows how the gospel shapes how you and I live in the now. Let's read verses 12 to 16. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I pressed on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. So in verse 12, Paul is linking in with what's gone before. He's written earlier that everything is a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord. He's written that he knows that he's received the gift of righteousness through faith in God. He knows he's been accepted by God. He's secure. But then he writes that his desire is to know Christ more, to know Christ's resurrection power and to share in his sufferings. And it is this that Paul writes that he's not already obtained in verse 12 or already reached as a destination. Paul was motivated, a man in single-minded pursuit with his eye on the goal. Yet we see Paul's reaching out and pursuit was in response to Jesus reaching out for him. Salvation is initiated by God. 
It was God who rescued Paul. It was God who encountered Paul on the road to Damascus. The Apostle John expressed it like this. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and gave his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. God initiates. God saves. God first loves us. And in experiencing his love, his salvation, his gift of righteousness, the response is the pursuing after Jesus that Paul describes. We're to know that Christ has made us his own. And that brings huge security. It brings wonder and joy. And the response is a running, striving, pursuing of Jesus and the prize. So God, through Paul, calls us to run hard for the prize. Paul turns to a metaphor of a running race and says that he isn't looking behind anymore. He's not looking back to the past, but he's straining on for the finishing tape. Paul's not looking back. He's not getting distracted by the past. And in this chapter, we've already read that Paul does look back and he looks back and he sees God's kindness towards him in saving him. He's also looked back at lessons he's learned from the past in verses four to six. So what does Paul mean when he says he doesn't look back? I think it means he's not dwelling on anything that hinders or impedes him from single-mindedly pursuing Jesus. And as I was preparing this talk, really two areas where we can be hindered in doing that came to my attention. And the first one was this. One possible way of looking back is through unforgiveness. It may be that someone you trusted, someone you loved, wronged you and hurt you and deeply scarred you. And you have not, never forgiven them. And the reality is, if there's unforgiveness, it can grow into bitterness. And unforgiveness and bitterness has power to lock us into the past and prevents us from single-mindedly pursuing Jesus. And even as I'm saying this, I think some of you probably names are coming into mind of, yeah, I've not forgiven that person. There's a call today to respond and, give your, and forgive people. It may be that you're despairing or you feel shame over past sins, which at worst cause you to question your salvation or may just cause you to have a cautiousness in approaching God because you feel shame. And they're just two areas that cause us to look back and hold us back. But in your life, if there are things that you know cause you to look back and hinder you from pursuing Christ, Paul would urge you to deal with them. He would urge you to deal with them today. And if you don't know how to do that, why not reach out to your life group leaders after this meeting and ask them to pray for you? What about reaching out to the prayer team this morning by clicking on the prayer button and helping them pray with you? But Paul's urge for us from this passage was say, don't leave things. Today is the day to run hard after Jesus and throw off anything that hinders See, Paul's secure, but he's straining to the goal. He says he presses on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The New International Version translation puts it like this. I think it's a bit clearer. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ Jesus. 3 verse 14. In the gospel, God calls us through Jesus heavenwards. 
The destination is eternity in God's presence in a restored creation. And that's the goal that Paul is running towards. But the prize isn't heaven itself. It is Christ. We live in a now and not yet. We have the privilege now of knowing Jesus. Moreover, we are living each day to know him better and better. But one day, King's Church, one day we will see him face to face in all his glory and all his wonder and all his splendour. What we've known of Christ before will be a mere shadow of of that day. Paul puts it like this in the letter to Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I've been fully known. So Paul is living to know Christ more. He's running hard with the power of God's spirit at work in him. He's focusing on his eternal destination that Jesus has won through his death and resurrection. And he's pressing on for the prize of knowing Christ in all his wonder. And Paul urges you and me and says, do the same. But the reality is, there will always be distractions, won't there? There will be other people who seek to divert our focus, other things that distract us away from that goal. And Paul continues in verses 17 to 19, and this is what he writes. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have, you have, you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. And in these verses, Paul is saying, choose role models, but choose them well. Paul speaks to the Philippians and urges them to imitate his example and of those who follow in his ways. However, he points out with weeping that in Philippi, many were living as enemies to the cross of Christ. Now, this may have been a conscious rejection of the gospel, or it may have been with ignorance to it. But with compassion and tears, Paul shows that there's an emptiness and a hopelessness outside of the gospel. It's interesting, the Christians in Philippi were surrounded by the clamour of many voices. The Christians in Philippi would have been a small minority living and working in a pagan Roman culture. It would have been easy for the Christians in Philippi to assimilate, to be shaped by the culture and to deny Jesus as the king. Now, Paul's, one strategy Paul could have done was he could have urged them to separate from the culture, to form a commune, to hunker down to be with other Christians. But far from backing away, elsewhere, Paul urges Christians to reach out to those who don't know the gospel and proclaim the message of life. The Christians in Philippi aren't to hunker down, but Paul urges them to be intentional and choose their role models well. And then, more profoundly, Paul points to them and says, Remember your identity. Remember your identity, Philippians. Verse 20 to 21 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Paul reminds the Philippian believers that their citizenship is in heaven, 
and they're awaiting for the return of Jesus Christ. They've not reached their destination, Jesus hasn't returned, but they are already citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And Paul urges them, live as citizens of heaven. Let me try and unpack what that means. When we as a family moved to Turkey in 2013, our goal was to live in a Turkish manner. Now, in terms of basic things, it was things like moving our watches two hours ahead on arrival. However, it was so much more than that. When in the UK, unless it was dreadful weather, Sophie or myself would take the children out to the park or for a walk every day to get fresh air. A few days after arriving in Istanbul, we saw this lovely play park. Sophie took the children there, whilst I went and looked for a flat for us for rent. It was an amazing park, but at 11am, it was empty. There was no one else there. It was about 35 degrees at the time. No one else would be so crazy or foolish as to go to the park in the middle of the day, except for some in English family with their children. A few days later, at 10pm, we drove past the same park in a taxi, back from a mammoth day of shopping in Ikea. We looked, and to our amazement, it was heaving and full of families with young children playing, eating ice cream and having fun. In the UK, our children had all been in bed by 7pm, and from that point it had been a child-free zone. Woohoo! It's adult time. Yet we realised if we wanted to build friendships and adapt to the culture we were living in, we had to abandon our tightly held habits and move towards Turkishness. We were residents of a new culture and had to adapt accordingly. About a year later, after we'd moved, I remember sitting in a restaurant with our friends, Aslan and Galai. It was about 10pm. Our seven-year-old, our five-year-old daughter at the time was playing with their five-year-old daughter, Eje. And it felt normal. We didn't feel stressed. And over the year, we died to our strongly prized value and started to live in the values of our new country. For us, there was a conscious decision to die to our UK preferences in order to embrace Turkishness. Now, we were never citizens of Turkey. We were only residents living there, uh, sharing our lives with Turkish people. But how much more should our eternal identity as citizens of heaven shape how we live in the present? We are citizens of the UK, but our ultimate citizenship is in heaven. Our allegiance is primarily to King Jesus, and we live as citizens of his kingdom. The values of the heavenly kingdom are to shape all aspects of our life. So I asked a few people from King's Church Kingston this question, what is one way living as a citizen of heaven impacts your daily life? Let's see what they say. I hope it means that I worry less about things that are only temporary or momentary um, in the eyes of God. So um, one example would be, uh, I try and worry less about what people, people think about me um, and try and always um, follow the Bible um, and what's on my heart. Because now my focus is on Jesus and my goal is to walk with him and it's not necessarily to, to please man. Um, it's about spreading the truth because we don't have multiple lives. We only get one life and the importance of sharing uh, the gospel uh, through speaking it and through our fruits is 
so important to our neighbour? I guess for me, it's given me a completely different outlook on life. Um, understanding that, yeah, I'm not from here. We're not from here. Um, we're going on to a better place. I guess when it comes to interaction with others, it gives me a lot more grace to, uh, towards people. Um, I guess a lot more patience as well for people. If anyone's ever traveled on the tube, you know how frustrating that can be. And uh, I guess it's, yeah, knowing that, you know, the, the battle is not mine to fight and the battle has actually ultimately already been won. Being a citizen of heaven affects how we use our finances. Your generosity in the last gift day last week gives evidence that you are living as citizens of heaven. It will affect how we work, how we give our best and how we honour our colleagues, how we submit to our bosses, how we're not argumentative. Living as a citizen of heaven will impact our relationships, our family life, our marriages, how we raise our children and how we draw others into our family life. Living as a citizen of heaven gives us an urgency and a passion to share the good news of Jesus with those who do not know it, both in Kingston and beyond to the ends of the earth. Being a citizen of heaven causes us to have compassion for the most vulnerable people in our society and to sacrifice and give to care for them and empower them. The gospel message is that if you've put your faith in Jesus as Lord and Saviour, you're a citizen of heaven. Your destination is eternity in God's presence, in a restored creation. Paul says to us, this is what you are. This is your identity. Live in the good of it. Let it be evident and on display. display. As it says in Philippians uh, chapter 2, shine as bright lights in your generation. So King's Church, Paul's provocation to the Philippians is his provocation to you. Run hard for the prize of knowing Christ. Know that your running hard is a response to God's initiative. He's made you his own. He's won you. He bought you with his own blood. He adopted you into his family. So your running hard with the help of the Holy Spirit is a response to the kindness you've received and the mercy of God. And let us live in the light of our heavenly citizenship, that we belong ultimately as citizens uh, to the kingdom of Jesus. Now, if you're here today exploring the Christian faith, checking it, checking it out, you wouldn't call yourself Christian, you may be asking, well, what's the purpose? What's this talk got to do with me? And in some ways, it has everything to do with you. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus came to earth, lived and died to be saviour of the world, opening the doors of salvation for everyone. And that includes you. I'd encourage you to continue exploring who Jesus is and the evidence for Jesus' life, death and resurrection. If this gospel message that Paul proclaims is true, and I'm persuaded it is, even after 31 years of following him, in fact, I'm more persuaded than ever, it's truly more wonderful than receiving Willy Wonka's golden ticket. It gives hope for the future, but also you learn to live for Jesus in the present and know him and know life in all its fullness. It's the greatest treasure that we could ever find. So let's respond now in worship as Ellen will lead us in the song Adoration as we offer our praises to King Jesus. <laughs> 